Radio. Hello and welcome to this Lumen Verum Apologetics Lecture by Dr. Wanda Skowonska on the topic, Language and Spiritual Warfare. This May 2008 recording comes from one of Lumen Verum's Friday Evening Apologetics Lectures at St. Michael the Archangel Parish in Belfield. Dr. Wanda Skowonska is a school counsellor and registered psychologist. Good evening, uh, everybody. Thank you for coming out on a cold, rather cool Friday night. And um, I was, have very fond memories of being here last year and um, doing a bit of attacking of psychology, which I do with great gusto because uh, there are some real charlatans in that area. And uh, But tonight I'm kind of indulging another interest of mine and I hope you um, will bear with me because I really uh, have become very interested in the way that we are being subtly and pervasively brainwashed um, by the use of language in our current society. I mean, the power of language to shape our view of the world is profound. Um, last century, we saw the way in which language changed entire societies through Hitler and Stalin, the way in which language was used to lay the solid foundations of fascist and totalitarian states. Did we ever think we'd live to see the day when we said that's in the past? In fact, the verbal engineering of those states preceded the social engineering. We may look back to these historic examples like the Nuremberg Rally or the big May Day parades in Red Square and say, of all the verbal propaganda, we might say, well, look, oh, I would never be a part of that. I didn't live through that. But in fact, I'm going to try and uh, present to you tonight that we are living through that. And it's even more um, insidious and surreptitious because we aren't aware of it. Um, I think that we really aren't aware that there's a ground shift in reality. We're all caught up in it. In a recent talk in the United States, Pope Benedict spoke of two kinds of darkness assailing the modern world. And he's a person who gets straight to the point. He has a marvellous use of language. He's like a George Orwell of the papacy, I would say. But he said, one type of darkness is one which degrades the heart in giving false satisfactions in worldly things. And he said, the second kind of darkness is that which affects the mind. And these are his exact words. The second area of darkness, that which affects the mind, often goes unnoticed. And for this reason is particularly sinister. The manipulation of truth distorts our perception of reality and tarnishes our imagination and aspirations. That manipulation of truth and the distortion and misuse of language is endemic. We are living through, we are the guinea pigs of a current social engineering project to banish God from mainstream life. To create a singly politically correct way of thinking not only to make religion private, but to well and truly banish it and to put it into a back room. We're not only taking the tabernacle out of churches, we're taking the name of God very much out of society. That's what's going on. Part of the effectiveness of this strategy is to lull us into a false sense of security. But things are not really too bad. After all, we can see that the socialist and communist utopias, which were described last century as imbued with evil principles in Rerum Novarum by Pope Leo XIII, 
um, you know, exported um, their ideas to certain countries, but they've collapsed. But really, those societies, I think, had their greatest success, not in Germany, not in Russia, but in the West, because they exported the notion of godlessness, they exported anti-spiritual ideas to the Catholic West and disguised it as a quasi-neutral liberalism, a form of communism without a name, the name of communism, a godless society without direct reference to Marx, Engels or Lenin. And uh, it's in a manner which has been described by one writer as an eerie phase of history that we're living through, in which vice holds the high moral ground, that being good is a bit banal and limpid and an attitude of go on, be a bit wicked is really looked on as a good thing and language is used as a powerful shaper of these realities and their underlying notions in our lives. I'm going to speak of three areas where language assaults and manipulates us in our daily lives. I'm not going to talk about the, the, the whole spectrum, this is just an initial talk to explore certain areas. I'm going to talk about three areas. One is the use of spiritual words for mundane realities. Secondly, I'll, use, I'll talk about the use of dehumanising words where life and family are concerned. And thirdly, the explosion of what I would call echo-linguistic terrorism in our daily lives. Now, firstly, you must surely have noticed the words as you walk up the supermarket denoting spiritual realities for mundane objects. You can see it not only in the supermarket, but you can see it on buses, um, on ads, billboards, overhead walkways. You've probably eaten the ice cream called heaven, biscuits called paradise, yogurts called divine, incense sticks called spiritual bliss. And of course, women on buses are often called goddesses and asked to evoke the goddess within by going to the local gym. The Sydney 2000 Olympic slogan, Embrace the Spirit, was unabashedly referring to a worldly sports pageant and to nothing beyond that. As were the car licence plates displaying Share the Spirit slogans and, uh, and the references to the Olympic torch saying Follow the Spirit. All looks very innocent. But those are words that once would have clearly evoked the idea of the Holy Spirit <coughs> and the Holy Ghost and some momentary thoughts of sacred things. But in the popular mainstream mindset, heavens no, that's, that's just not, you know, not for discussion. You know, we've got the exhortation, uh, for example, to feel the spirit for World Youth Day. That's a very different meaning from what was meant at the time of the Olympic Games. And the point is, the constancy with which the profane and the sacred um, are interchanged and manipulated is so common now that I would say most people, and I would put Christians among them, don't even register it too much. We are getting desensitised. And desensitisation works. Um, it's sort of like a Pavlovian conditioning. By the way, do you know the joke about Pavlov's laboratories? On the sign outside the Pavlov laboratory that says, please do not ring the bell. But another way that language has desensitized us, or spiritual language is concerned, is in the presentation of figures of the spirit world who appear tamed in a humorous comic form. 
This is all with the idea of, um, you know, trivialising demons, making them familiar characters in mainstream. Demons are fun figures, as are witches. And of course, we all know that TV series Bewitched and Sabrina the Teenage Witch, which have laid the path for the mainstream acceptance of websites such as www.teenwitch.com in which teenagers are helped through various means to decide if they really are witches or not by books such as To Ride a Silver Broomstick, New Generation Witchcraft by Silver Ravenwolf and the Teen Spell Book by Jamie Wood teaching children how to cast spells. Angels and demons appear in advertisements in, in a jocular spirit. Angels are seen in romantic poses, winking, you know, a, 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 in a romantic way to somebody. Even remember the Philadelphia cheese ad where angels sample cheese, their greatest pleasure in the heavenly world. And interestingly, there are demonic touches in a lot of ads, adding horns or little dark death-like touches to faces and then rapidly losing any negative impact. Demons once inspired a holy fear and a suitable dread. The exorcist, after all, did touch some raw deep nerve over 20 years ago when it first came out. But now demons and witches are tamed creatures that you buy costumes um, of and you take children to parties, you know, dressed as little devils, little angels, little witches and even little nuns to add to the merriment. And it's all meant to be a bit of a joke. And uh, there are even little references like when Halloween comes around, this kind of jocular spirit, uh, you know, this jocular way of referring to you know, angels and demons really reaches a high pitch. And um, even talking about channeling spirits is becoming quite common. I've become aware of that in the last year, that people will talk about, oh, He's talking as if he channeled some spirit, you know, and I was most surprised to hear that in ordinary conversation. And I've even heard it on um, um, a TV ad, though I, I couldn't recall which one it was, but, you know, somebody's, oh, Dad's channeling a spirit. It was an ad, I think, for breakfast cereal. And uh, that surprised me. And, of course, books on how to cast spells now, you can buy in the news agent next to how to cook Chinese or how to do tandoori chicken. It's all, it's all the same. It's all on the same level. It's quite common to have demons as protagonists of stories and movies, reversing the natural reactions that you might have. In a book entitled Dark Angel, The Ascent, a description is given of the book in the following way. This book is about a demoness from hell named Veronica who wishes to explore the world above. Born and raised in hell, she has never experienced the pleasures of life on earth. Against her father's wishes, she makes the ascent to earth and finds herself naked in a dark alleyway. She soon gets hit by a car and finds herself in hospital to be tended by a doctor called Max. Max brings Veronica into his home and Veronica, watching the local TV news, realises earth is filled with evildoers. Soon Veronica goes on a murderous pilgrim vigilante rampage to rid the city of scum, including the town's crooked mayor. Note what's happening in that description, whose language reads like any old book blurb. The protagonist is described as coming from hell, as if she'd come from Parramatta, Belfield or Mossman. Then she moves into the realm of the heroic and uh, the good in seeking to do away with an evil mare. This inversion is quite deliberate and consciously 
desensitizes the reader's reaction of genuine horror at somebody coming from the realms of the underworld. It's a way of reducing mystery to the level of the quotidian, the bourgeois, the everyday, cosy tea party. And also to reduce any inhibitions you might have had in uh, not dealing with those um, holy things in a profane way. And all of this is done through the medium language, words you and I use every day. The relentless use of the language of prayer and the denigration of it to advertise goods is also very common in our era. There's a drink called Rush, which advertised itself with giveth us this day our daily rush. Now I've heard the term a bone of immaculate contention used in discussion and few are chosen to indicate the elite nature of those buying a particular product. Bondi's being called a sacred strip of sand and rugby's being called the game they play in heaven with crosses used as a decorative symbol among letters to advertise the website www.rugbyheaven.com Not only prayer itself, but sacraments are presented in a mocking uh, light. Recall in 2002 the TUI's new brand beer ad, the controversial television advertisement showed a young man entering a confessional, confessing a sexual sin, receiving the names of three women from a priest who had come you know, into the confessional themselves then the man goes out, orders a round of beer, laughing and joking about the names of these women. Now, this, the manager, um, and who was uh, in charge of uh, having that ad, and he said he himself was a Catholic and was not offended by that advertisement. Now, it took a mammoth effort by certain people who decided they would mount a protest. But the sad consequence is not many in the Catholic world protested. And that was the evidence that it didn't really offend them. Which gives us something to think about and you know, where, what Catholics should be doing. Um, if I can give a little story by contrast, in America when um, I think uh, Pope John Paul II was insulted by the head of CNN, Ted... Uh, yeah. Um, there's a, an organisation there called Life League and they went after him. I pursued him for an entire six months uh, through every organisation possible until they dragged an apology out of him and he had to apologise in public on his own network saying that he had offended Catholics and he withdrew that. We should be acting in the same way. We should not allow people to mock our faith. After all, even if you look at it statistically, we are 30% of Australia, nearly 30%. So, I mean, why are people think that they can get away with deriding our faith like that without our response is a question I think that is really for us to think about and uh, perhaps, you know, have a f make share ideas with and have a few strategies about. Now some advertisers might say, oh look, these jokes, they're just meant in a light-hearted way, don't get, you know, too over the top about it. In cases, this is certainly true. And I'm known for having a, an incorrigible sense of humour. And of course, there's room for humour to some extent. But, you know, for those who have a strong sense of the sacred, um, yes, we might tell a story or two about angels or about what this saint said to that saint. But in a de-Christianised society, a secular liberal society, such as one finds in Europe and in other parts of the West and Australia, there's a completely different agenda. When you start joking in that way, in that context, you denigrate 
the sacred to people who are already denigrating it. You haven't got friendly listeners. And you confirm the mainstream views about the wacky and strange nature of religion in general. And in using sacred language for the mundane, you take away, bit by bit, the reader's attention or the listener's attention from the sacred meanings of the words. And what you're doing is affecting this social engineering project. It's a conditioning effect, most certainly. And uh, it's an attack on the spiritual world itself, no less. It acclimatises people to offensive language. And of course any genuine Christian is offended because of the profound meaning attached to these words. Um, and it's an indication of the ever-increasing encroachment of the banality of evil. Hannah Arendt, who was a historian writing about World War II, wrote about the, um, the uh, Gestapo member Eichmann, Adolf Eichmann, and about his trial in Jerusalem, and she was trying to find a word to describe the depths of the evil of this man who could speak about, you know, the extermination of Jews, gypsies, and Slavs in a very light-hearted way, um, almost not even light-hearted, just as if it were nothing really, just business as usual. And she couldn't fathom it, and she said in the end, she coined this term, which has kind of entered the lexicon and the memory field, it's a banality of evil. And that's how it is in our times, I think, that you've got this ordinary everyday life, but people losing the antenna and the sensitivity to the, the genuine horror of what's going on. Um, and of course, Catholics don't seem to complain too much about these things when it happens. Some do, some don't. And uh, I think what's one of the principal problems of our age, that there's no consistent way for Catholics to disagree, protest, or stand up for their faith in a way. It's just seen as being a little bit too querulous, fundamentalist, or whatever, you know. But uh, there is this blanket of misplaced tolerance and a false understanding of politeness, which replaces the authentic voice of the Christian, who needs to stand up for his or her authentic identity and speak firmly, clearly, respectfully, but always with conviction if for no other reason than to stop discrimination against their own faith. I've always found the word discrimination a good one to use when I'm complaining about something to somebody who's attacked the faith, saying you're discriminating against Catholics by saying that. People usually get on the back foot because they don't want to be seen as intolerant, which is the cardinal sin of the modern age. And uh, it's frightening to see how effective though, this demonic attack on Christians is. Um, in that we're not sending an avalanche of complaints and in general of acquiescing to these attacks. That's one area, this desacralisation of, um, of language. But the second area that I mentioned at the beginning of my talk is the language as, uh, as regards uh, politically correct descriptions of life and family life. Here language is really being debased in a, you'd say, planned conspiratorial way. It's well known to pro-lifers who've argued for decades that the unborn child is a person. In the face of pro-abortion activists such as philosophy professor Peter Singer at Princeton University in the US who changed the meaning of the word person to suit more utilitarian criteria. And he, he espouses this philosophy of um, consequentialism 
you know, where people can really decide whether a child should live or not, and that's their, their right to decide that. And so the criteria of um, the right to life are becoming increasingly elitist, if you've noticed. Um, the process of dehumanising certain unwanted groups in human history, especially uh, in changing the meaning of the word person, is dealt in a very effective and comprehensive way by a sociology professor who's a Catholic called William Brennan in his book called Dehumanising the Vulnerable. Um, if you ever want to, you know, read it sometime, it's, a, it's an excellent book um, and really goes into, if you're interested in this linguistic aspect of language, goes into how um, people have been dehumanised through history, not only the unborn, but, you know, the various nationalities and, you know, the words used to it. And it's strange, but all the words that are being used against undesirable others are being used now about the unborn. So it's very clear that that's where the, you know, the war has shifted. Um, in his great novels, Animal Farm and 1984, all, George Orwell illustrated this process of social control through language by inventing very believable ver verbal uh, slogans, terms such as Big Brother, the Ministry of Truth, Double Think and Thought Crime. And of course the well-known expression, some people are more equal than others. He actually used the expression, some animals are more equal than others, but people quote it now by you know, replacing animal with uh, people to make the point. Now, they've become part of the communal memory of the West. Orwell was unique. He lived in a context where I think few of us can really appreciate how unique his writing was. He was in a context where he'd been to the best of the British unis. His peers were people like Anthony Burgess, um, Kim Philby, um, Donald MacLean, all of them in the 1930s espoused the Soviet cause. And uh, Anthony Blunt was another one. And he was the peer, and he also went into this uh, communism and you know, thought the Soviet Union had the answer because evidently capitalism had failed when he saw the suffering of the Depression. And um, he went along with all the communist lumbo-jumbo, and in the end, um, he actually had that rare quality of seeing facts and doing a reassessment and having the greatness to say, I was wrong. And that's what he did. And he became very much a campaigner for um, the precise definitions of words and resisting you know, the deconstruction that was uh, really well entrenched by the time that he was there. Um, many pro-lifers are aware of this kind of deconstruction of language. Um, George Orwell said, political language is designed to make lies um, sound truthful. It's to make murder respectable and to give it an appearance of solidity to pure wind. He used to make very kind of like you know, sardonic and ironic comments about uh, politics and language and wrote an essay that became a classic called Politics in the English Language in which he looked at um, the way words are manipulated in politics. Now, I think that he would be horrified to live in our era to see the degree of manipulation of language. I was actually once part of a pro-life lobby team in the UN and I was thrown into the thick of it. I was just the kind of, you know, the Aussie who went to New York in high hopes. No, I didn't even know what a lobbyist was till I got there. Then I was made a member of a lobby team. And there were 30 of us against 300 feminists. And I was so shocked 
in sitting there in the General Assembly room in the UN because the battles were over words. I was there most days, you know, from about 10 till 6 in the evening and it was really hard slog because you were trying to lobby with people whose English wasn't very good, who were members of, um, you know, representatives of nations and members of different organisations. So in the break times, that was our kind of hard work, but we had to go and speak to them and uh, try to persuade them, which we did on some occasions. But the words that they were confused by were these at the time, emergency contraception. That sounds like contraception, doesn't it? But it isn't. Actually, emergency contraception refers to an early stage abortion. But what the abortion side had very cleverly worked out is if you use a word that changes people's perception and keep hammering and hammering away at it, once you get it passed, once people vote for it, you've won it and then they have to kind of go along with your meaning of the words. And uh, I, I'm not uh, joking, one night um, we were asked to stay the entire night, the UN, to debate those two words, emergency contraception. Because what the other side had done was at night said, right, can I have a debate now? All night they called it and of course the Speaker of the House was pretty sympathetic saying, right, and of course all the pro-lives are packing up to go home, thinking it's the end of the day. And that's the kind of dirty tricks department that was going on. And then suddenly we're all called and say, hey, you know, um, there's going to be a battle all night about two words. And they were indeed there. And the pro-life side won on that occasion, but that was some time ago since then. I think there's been, um, you know, um, increasing advancement of, of accepting those words. What that emergency contraception really means is once that um, fertilisation has taken place um, and there's impl um, almost implantation in the womb, if you can give a post, um, what is it, a, like a, uh, a morning after pill or, you know, give a certain pill to destroy those fertilised, the fertilised uh, young embryo before it's implanted, that's called contraception. Well, of course, in the Catholic world, that's not contraception. It's not, I mean, not the Catholic world, and anybody can see it's the beginning of a new life. Any scientist would say that is the beginning of a new human life. But uh, that was the wordplay and the change of perception that was going on then. The Vatican delegation at the UN was on to this and uh, they fought very, very hard and like heroically, you know, to keep these words um, not defined. For example, they said, we align ourselves with poor women anywhere. But of course the feminists are hardly poor women. I mean, they've all jet said it, you know. I mean, I went to one conference and I remember it very much, but like these people go to four, five, six, seven a year. They're, they're just jet-setting from one conference to another. One of the feminists thought I was one of them and came up to me and said, well, are you going to Amsterdam now? <laughs> I said, oh, you know, Amsterdam, you know. And uh, then we go to Copenhagen after that. I mean, it's just a, a lifestyle for these for feminists and they're funded, you know, probably... Um, you know, to the tune of millions to go and fight these verbal battles, you see. So it's going on all the time and Austin Ruse, who is the Catholic lobbyist permanently in the UN and the Vatican delegation are onto it, but it's a small group against a large, violent, virulent uh, lobby against them. And of course, another term that was very vexed was reproductive choice. It sounds good, choice, reproductive choice, but of course that was a code for access to abortion. 
everybody who is in that, whether they're on the pro-life or the pro-choice side knows reproductive choice means access to abortion. And ironically, um, a lot of Catholics aren't aware of that, especially those who support the Earth Charter, which is the major green doc document of the world, which refers to re reproductive choices quite a few times within it. So they think they're being very greeny, supporting a greeny document, but it's really um, not that at all. Um, so a lot of people are really fooled by that as they're fooled by the term gender, which of course in radical feminist <coughs> ideology has little to do with maleness or femaleness and according to them is a political construct. So there's no such thing as male and female. This word was dealt with in a fascinating way by Dale O'Leary in a book called The Gender Agenda. And it's a very fascinating, interesting book. She writes in a very readable um, way. And uh, that recounts her experiences at repeated UN conferences um, where people are fighting to the death over this word gender, you know, to eliminate this, uh, the whole notion of, of femaleness being linked to nurturing or motherhood. It's just they want to exterminate the very notion. And she came to the conclusion that all these gender wars are really an attack on motherhood itself. It's like that's, that's the main point, the zeroing in on it. They want to exterminate that um, from people's thinking. One of the most virulent war of the words um, is being focused on the word family. I'm sure you'd be aware of that lately in the media. There's a concerted attempt and largely successful in many places to redefine the word family to mean any group of people, to insist that such a group would be normative for any purposes uh, in bringing up a child and associated financial purposes. Same-sex couple rights in particular are being increasingly fought in the Western world. We just had them um, voted for here. It's interesting that the word gay was appropriated by the gay lobby because it kind of glosses over the instinctive kind of step back that most people do if they heard terms like homosexual Mardi Gras or queer Mardi Gras or something like that. But in a bit of a, you know, linguistic slate of hand, they put in the word gay. And of course, gay Mardi Gras doesn't sound so bad. So see the difference a word makes. But there are Catholics who are on the ball and they're on the case that one boy in America had many copies of a T-shirt made because he thought of a little slogan saying, be happy, not gay. And he walked around with that and of course <laughs> a lot of people wanted to kind of, you know, get in for that. But uh, it, it very simply and effectively got the message across, you know, without saying too much. Now, in the context of this spiritual war against the family, um, Pope John Paul II uh, addressed this uh, huge meeting that was in 2003 in Manila. And he said about the family, he said, the future of humanity passes by way of the family. Make the gospel be the guiding principle of your families and make your families a page of the gospel written for our time. Now, 350,000 participated in that conference and one million attended the final mass, which was celebrated by six cardinals, 250 archbishops and 500 priests. And in the Philippines, whenever you go there to speak, there's just such enormous crowds and they're all so Christian, uh, they're so on fire for Christ. I had the experience once of addressing a school in, uh, in the Philippines 
And I was told I'd be just addressing a few classes and there are actually 1,300 students there at a school called St Mark of the Archangel. And when a little light-hearted comment was made like, oh, do you know, happen to know the prayer to St Michael the Archangel, all 1,300 students immediately started to, in unison, they nearly rose, St Michael the Archangel, defend us in the day of battle. And they said the entire prayer through, so they knew it, you know, word for word. And uh, I'll just never forget at this moment of these, you know, young teenagers' voices saying the prayer and I thought, there's this strength of the church that, you know, heartens you when you kind of uh, hear that thing. But anyway, getting back to this family conference that also had a cast of, you know, millions and so on, Cardinal Jamie Sin, before his death, made this uh, statement at that conference. He said, is the family really good news when traditional values of fidelity and commitment are frowned upon? as vestiges of an antiquated past? How can the family be good news when today's children often cannot be safe even within their own homes? Mm -hmm. To this question, I dare respond, yes. The family is still good news in the third millennium, but not simply family. It has to be a Christian family. Now, interesting that he said that because he put spotlight on the fact that family like in the war, the words of family, people can say family, family, but he's aware that the word family isn't enough. And, you know, we really have to kind of specify and fight that secular definition of the family with the Christian, um, you know, notion of the family and all that goes along with it. How close this battle is, is illustrated by an article in the Daily Telegraph in Sydney just a few days ago. I quote, Teachers in all state schools, teachers are being urged to stop using terms such as husband and wife when addressing students or families under a major anti-homophobia push in schools. The terms boyfriend, girlfriend and spouse are also on the banned list to be replaced by the generic partner. Dating partner? Yeah, oh, partner for everything, yeah. In changes sought by the gay lobby aimed at reducing discrimination in classrooms. Schools are coming under increasing pressure to provide lessons for gay, lesbian, bisexual and transgender students and stack their libraries with books and videos covering these issues. Among the demands are the outlawing of homophobic comments by teachers or students in the playground and a requirement for teachers to receive diversity training. Uh, now, the, see, that this is not only the linguistic engineering but the social engineering. This is and how many state schools we've got. So I'm just presenting to you the width of the problem. Education Director-General Michael Coots trotter um, emerged as a leader of the school anti-homophobia campaign, opening a government-backed conference on sexual diversity. And it was called That's So Gay. The Federation of Parents and Citizens Association also weighed in on the debate calling for appropriate literacy materials of uh, promoting diversity in families. This radical shake-up means families with two mums and two dads are set to be accepted as normal parts of school communities, and so on. And he said, happy families come in all shapes and sizes. Doesn't it sound lovely? Have a cup of tea and a scone. It's all so normal. It's with these ideological verbal battles, such as the one over the family, but the Holy See published a glossary of 90 words related to family and sexual issues. 
And that lexicon, it's available on the internet, I think you can buy it at St Paul's, clarifies what the meaning of words that we've known really for hundreds of years, what they really are. They actually define, you know, words like family or what uh, homosexuality is, what um, words like reproductive health really mean, sex education, conjugal love. Words which have been used and misused and abused in such ways that they cause great moral confusion. They need to be explained one by one. Now the debasement of language in pro-abortion verbal engineering has gone on for decades. And so that's why the Vatican had to publish this. Confucius once said, if there were one thing that I think would stop a lot of the violence in the world, it would be that we give clear definitions of words. Interesting comment. But he didn't say, learn more Kung Fu or Karate. He said, you know, just give precise definitions of words because there's such a confusion of understanding that follows from confusion of language as well as the confusion that precedes it. It's a kind of escalating confusion. But now that we're talking about escalating confusion, let me begin on this um, echo-linguistic terrorism that I spoke about before because really the... Ecology would be probably the most uh, creative and exploding source of new words in our time. I mean, we've not only got ecology, we've got eco-friendly, eco-system, eco-theology, eco-justice, eco-crime, eco-chic. That's eco-chic. You can wear, uh, I think, is it cactus plant shirts or something like that, eco-chic. And uh, eco-fashionistas who wear organic cotton blouses wool from free-range sheep and shoes from recycled materials. We're not just describing new jargon or fashion here. We're in the throes of a quasi-religious ideological takeover here, which demands body and soul. Um, in trying to use a term of abuse, back at these echo-ideologues, Christopher Pearson in The Australian on the 2nd of uh, December last year described... Um, this new deep green religion is eco-fundamentalism. You know how Christians always go, are oh, you fundamentalist? You know, he was calling them the fundamentalists. And the use of quasi-religious terminology um, is really part of this new age thinking. It falls into under that larger umbrella. And Pope Benedict himself has got his finger right on the pulse of the new age. Uh, in a book called Truth and Tolerance, published in 2003. So there are two major tendencies of the New Age. One is to kind of um, call the earth a Gaia and make that, you know, um, divinise the earth, which is, you know, very much against our religion. Um, and the other is Gnosticism, this idea that you've got special knowledge and enlightenment to attain a higher level of being. So you see, he sees those two um, as the major, but not like the only, but the major kind of uh, thrusts in the in the um, New Age movement. Now, it's not only a question here of using words such as angels or witches in a mundane way, as I previously spoke about, but we're talking about a massive replantation and, and transformation of Christian terms in a highly political way, masked as concern for the earth in a new religious apocalyptic kind of narrative that's daily hammered in the media, our sins are now being seen as green guilt and they stem not from personal failings with regard to God and neighbour but from greenhouse gas emissions or put it another way, 
God and neighbour are best served by saving the physical earth and turning our lights off. In 2007, a UK journalist called Frank Ferradi announced the following. He said, in August, Dom Anthony Such, a Benedictine monk, announced he would hear echo confessions of sins against the environment at Waveney Greenpeace Festival in a confessional booth carefully constructed from recycled materials. The good monk clearly practices what he preaches. He tries very hard to live a green lifestyle and he's proud of his principal achievement, reducing his electricity bill by 30%. And so that's virtue these days. Now, of course, social sin, there is a meaning to the term. Pope John Paul II used it especially in pro-life matters. But now it's being used by a large number of people who do not care enough about their carbon emissions. Um, maybe even today you have not cared about carbon emissions enough. You know, maybe you've let that slip your thoughts. And of course purity is attained by buying a water purifier and eating uncontaminated food. And people expiate guilt in a new asceticism by cutting down on energy possessions and sacrificing money to the new global eco-utopia. Catholics are delighted to join in this eco-faith because it gives an outlet for the religious impulses they were taught in childhood and renders them acceptable and have high, they have high kudos in mainstream society. In fact, some eco-saviors with Savonarola-type duanas have insisted we switch off all our lights on Earth Day and in an act of quasi-religious togetherness and mutual concern, what I'd call a real communal mystical darkness, um, they, they asked us to do that this year in April and uh, this Earth Day was instituted in 1970, a long time ago, to stop environmental abuse. Well, in Australia last year, on March 29th, some did switch them off and some didn't. But some people observed the Earth wasn't saved after people switched off the lights. In fact, Caroline Overington in the Australian, who wrote an article afterwards, said that this, you know, massive Earth Day echo effort um, only saved enough CO2 which would fuel one flight to Asia on a plane. <laughs> now, people felt very morally superior afterwards, but a number of others took the next flight to Asia to have a holiday. And of course, uh, you know, a few more Earth Days will fix it. If you read the media, this project is really gathering uh, force, and you know, it's a really gathering strength. But things were even worse in Minnesota during Earth Week because the Earth actually misbehaved. Mm -hmm. A local newspaper reported the following. The St. Peter food cop tried to be nice to Mother Earth, but she wasn't nice back. The group's first procession of the Species Earth Day parade had to be postponed after organisers were greeting with a coating of snow, high winds and temperatures near freezing. Mm -hmm. And not only that, but people over the whole state saw a wide range of snowfalls on the final weekend of April to give you some perspective on the same day the year before it was 85 and sunny. So they were very upset. And the one little town in particular, it was called Bemidji, it said Bemidji has been buried in snow for three weeks in what's supposed to be spring. So this is global warming from our little corner of the globe. It's a concept that is very difficult to grasp of late. So despite the hardness of the facts, Part of the 
new eco-religion and the switching off the lights calls for eco ecological conversion. Right? We have to be converted. We have to arouse our green consciousness and rouse our eco-virtue. Christians, laity and clergy alike are all getting the approval of the media. And of course they eagerly quote Pope John Paul II who used the word we should become ecologically converted in his World Peace Speech Day of 1999. But they never quote the fact that while he really exhorted good care of the earth, he also said you have to place the human being at the centre of concern because that's the safest way um, of uh, safeguarding creation. Now this is a piece of echo anathema, you see, because human beings are meant to be the nasty uh, antagonist. We've destroyed the earth. And um, of course saving the trees is more important than the neglected born and unborn members of our planet who don't have such a high place on the web of life. And of course, conveniently forgotten is the need for spiritual conversion and repentance. And especially the notion that Pope John Paul II said that our sins can often cause the imbalances of nature. Of course he didn't say every time, but he said it has a role to play. But of course that's an earth, you wouldn't want to muddy the waters of this earthly message with talk about real and personal sins. Oh no. The real sin is these amorphous, black, horrible, besmirching substance called carbon emissions. In the eyes of the echo saviors, sins of omission don't exist anymore, it's sins of emission. Virtues <laughs> <laughs> are not theological anymore, they're ecological. And we get sustainable development using water and the earth well. These will bring echo salvation. You know, when you think of all those ascetic monks through the ages who tilled the soil modestly tending their gardens, couldn't they have risen even higher on the plane of virtue by being vegans? Couldn't they have really stopped worrying about sulphur emissions and really focused on carbon emissions instead of their sins? Well, they could have, yes. We even have the equivalent of an overall original sin in really terms. It's a comes out in this um, old greeny favourite book, Al Gore's book called Earth in the Balance, published in 1992. And uh, this US journalist Michael DeWeese refers to the pervasive infiltration of Gore's ideas about the worst uh, problem in the world and the overall root of our problems, the one thing that is really destroying and it's really, you know, working all the time, it's eating away at it and that is that, you know, we have the problem of sustainable development. That's the magic word people keep saying all the time. So, you know, Al Gore, self-styled saviour of the planet, has been working assiduously for the adoption of Agenda 21. This is an agenda which uh, was um, formulated at the United Nations Earth Summit in 1992 and it calls for the entire change of the infrastructure of all nations. He doesn't want much, does he? And he wants uh, sustainable development councils in every country. Don't laugh at this, it may not be a joke. Overriding personal property and civil rights, in fact controlling our lives so we'll be happy little carbon emission killers, sun adorers and green groupies. 
Gore's sustainable development policy logo bases itself on the three E's, you see, the whole language of virtue and hierarchy that goes with it. The three E's, social equity, economic prosperity and ecological integrity. See how the language of morality and Christianity gets transposed onto it all. I find it hypocritical because he lives in a luxurious town full of uh, carbon emissions. Yes. Well, this is it. I mean, yeah, and he uh, flies everywhere. <laughs> Apparently uses four computers and his lights are on. So, yeah, I mean, we should really play up that point. <coughs> right is he above the wall? I think, you know, some animals are more equal than others. <laughs> That's the way it goes. And from these, Gore has incessantly assured us in tones of lyrical green warbling, uh, from all this will come social justice. If only people will submit to the all-wise sustainable development policy, the whole earth will change for the better. You see, virtue and vice will be no more. Sustainable development will reign supreme. Presumably psychopaths will be cured. I won't have a job. Wife beating will be gone. Poverty, suicide, bombing and cheating will be a thing of the past because sustainable development will rule all. It's sad and very sobering to see members of Catholic organisations falling for this, which they are. It's green politic, you know, green agate prop, green, you know, nomenclatura and all that. But then naive people can be found everywhere. But the thing is, we need to alert them to this. Many people embrace the green dream, but forget the United Nations Earth Charter. The foundation document of all green groups is pro-abortion. They prefer to see their green dream the contemporary equivalent of Potemkin villages, those model places which Western tourists were shown by Soviet officials when they were given a good time in Soviet Russia, um, not even imagining there might be more to the story. Modern-day eco-tourists, no doubt, will be shown model villages recycling, busily exterminating carbon emissions. And in the meantime, nobody will spend much time attacking China, the world's greatest emitter of carbon, by the way, um, and uh, also... Um, you know, the, the killer of so many children in the one-child policy. In fact, as Mark Stain tells us in a book called Children, Not If You Love the Planet, people like Professor Bailey Whalers would like Australia to emulate China's child reduction policies. So he quotes all these academics who are actually pro-China's one-child policy. Um, and then, you know, that... Um, we should really get on the bandwagon because people basically are just producers of rubbish and carbon emissions. That's what it says. Um, and there's a, a, another person called Tony Vernelli who proudly, I think Australian, proudly announced that she'd been sterilised. And um, she said that we are the pollution. Sterilisation is the solution. The best way to bequeath a more sustainable environment if it is to our children is not to have any. Yeah, but if she's <laughs> so work that one out. That's if she's sterilising, how can you have a future? Exactly. But you know, logic isn't the strong point here. This is this is the area of propaganda and manipulation. Yeah, this is this line of thought runs through Professor David Benatar's recent book called Believe It or Not, Better Never to Have Been Born, published in two thousand and seven, published by Oxford University Press. Of course, this may be bad news for the pro-choice movement because they may even now have to abandon the right to choose to have children and be enthralled instead by imagining how better the planet would have been without anyone having been born. And if there's nobody there, there's nobody to choose, so they might even have to drop choice. No wonder Pope Benedict 
while always exhorting modest use of the Earth's resources. And that's what's behind his statements. And that's why, you know, so he, people get solar panels, but they don't go overboard and adopt it as a religion. And, you know, I mean, the modest use of the Earth resources predates any green enthusiasts. You know, he criticises the climate prophets of doom and these are echo manipulators. It's true the Holy See installed some solar panels or, and you know, exhorts using the Earth's resources moderately and, you know, even says, OK, the carbon offset plan. But he's not an environmentalist in a typical secular sense and it's very, very important to grasp this. You know, he just sees moderate use of the Earth's resources as part of our morality, a moral issue, but in the context of doing justice to others. So the announcement that was in the paper recently, this kind of beat-up about the new seven deadly sins that were among, among which were polluting the environment and so on, I mean, was another attempt at linguistic manipulation and, as I said, a beat-up, you know, because this whole idea of sin was invoked. Um, you know, with, with echo crimes. However, the secular liberals, such as journalist Daniel Stone and Newsweek, are quick to label the Pope an environmentalist and uh, they wait with bated breath for him to address echo concerns. I mean, there was a whole army, green army, waiting in America for him to make his speech on the environment. They didn't think that he was going to talk about anything else. They were shocked when he addressed other issues, such as... Um, you know, justice and he even addressed the problem of the victims of the um, clergy abuse and he, you know. But I mean, he addressed so many issues that they were waiting for his definitive statement on the environment. And uh, he did make one, just one, at the UN. It was a very brief one. He said, you know, we should all use um, modestly the Earth's resources. There are a lot of people and we should share. Um, but of course, the Catholic Earthcare website in Sydney took this up with great gusto and they've published a picture of Pope Benedict with this one quote from the tens of thousands of words have got this one quote on the environment on their webpage with him standing there, these crashing waves on the shore because he's the great environmentalist. Talk about manipulation of the truth. Anyway, his, uh, yeah, his quote was very, very small. In fact, Pope Benedict dared to challenge the green hegemony by saying fears over man-made emissions, melting the ice caps and so on, um, was nothing more than scaremongering. And he warned the faithful against new dogmas of intransigent ecologists. In fact, there have been two consistent threads in the critique of secular echo fervour, warnings against the arousal of terror and panic, hence the need for global political control of all the earth. And the second has been the soothing tones of Mother Earth thinking um, that, you know, divinising creation, you know, and all this implicit pantheism. So, you know, and he's been attacking both of these consistent threads of uh, echo fanaticism. But of course, in the end, what are the echo saviors who are around us going to do with echo heretics? There's a problem for them. They can't burn us because we create too many carbon emissions. <laughs> if they shame us in public, that might create too much hot air, which would increase carbon emissions too. But the only thing left is to send us to organic composting re-education camps where we can reflect on the error of our ways. I suppose we'll be given a spade and a warm jacket and we'll be provided with, with them by the carbon cops who take us there because it might be you know, really cold out there in those camps. 
But as Catholics, in conclusion, I think we have a lot of uh, myth-busting to do. I think that when we get an idea of the problem and, you know, with clarity, um, we realise that the power of one person, think of one writer, Solzhenitsyn in Soviet Russia, and how he engendered terror in the Soviet system that had all these armies. Imagine George Orwell in the context of all his Soviet uh, sympathetic friends. It often just takes one, the power of one, one person to cut through the hot air and through the waffle. I've heard a new expression recently that I like, um, the waffle SS. It's sort of like people who waffle on too much, you can kind of label them that. And um, yes, George Orwell said, to speak the truth in a time of universal deceit is a revolutionary act. And I would say never before has there been a time to take, to get rid of our spirit of timidity and to take on um, courage and this revolutionary spirit to counteract deceit and political correctness. Thank you. You have been listening to a Lumen Verum Apologetics Lecture by Dr. Wanda Swavonska. For more Lumen Verum Apologetics Lectures, visit cradio.org.au.